The Holy Scriptures are the Word of God given to us for our salvation. The Scriptures are essential in receiving a testimony of Jesus Christ and His gospel. The Scriptures given to us by God in these latter days are the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. These sacred records bear testimony of the Savior and lead us to Him. That is why great prophets like Enos cried unto the Lord in faith to preserve the scriptures. Will you open with me the cover of the Book of Mormon? On the title page, we read that it is written by way of commandment and by the spirit of prophecy and revelation, and it has come forth by the gift and power of God, and its interpretation is the gift of God by the Holy Ghost. It shows what great things the Lord has done and has given to us that we may know the covenants of the Lord, that we might not be cast off forever. Most importantly, it has been written to convince us that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God. Turn the page again to the introduction. Here we learn that this prophetic record is Holy Scripture comparable to the Bible. It contains the fullness of the everlasting gospel, outlines the plan of salvation, and tells us what we must do to gain peace in this life and eternal salvation in the life to come. It promises to each of us, all who will come unto the Savior and obey the laws and ordinance of His gospel may be saved. What is the vital role of this sacred book in our day? What is its message regarding the purpose of all Scripture? On page 1 of the book of 1 Nephi, the first book of the Book of Mormon, we learn that Lehi, in about 600 B.C., was directed by God to take his family and flee into the wilderness. But Lehi didn't get very far before the Lord commanded him to send his son back. Why? To retrieve the scriptures, the brass plates, which were so important that Lehi's sons risked their lives, lost all their worldly possessions to recover them. Ultimately, it was the Lord's help and Nephi's faith that miraculously delivered the plates into his hands. When Nephi and his brothers returned, Lehi, their father, rejoiced. He began to search the Holy Scriptures from the beginning and found that they were desirable, yea, even of great worth, insomuch that they could preserve the commandments of the Lord unto their children. Indeed, the brass plates were a record of Lehi's fathers, including their language, genealogy, and more importantly, the gospel taught by God's holy prophets. As Lehi searched the plates, he learned what all of us learn by studying the scriptures, who we are, what we can become, prophecies for us and for our posterity, the commandments, laws, ordinances, and covenants we must live by to obtain eternal life, and how we must live in order to endure to the end and return to our Heavenly Father with honor. So essential are these truths that Heavenly Father gave both Lehi and Nephi visions vividly representing the Word of God as a rod of iron. Both father and son learned that holding to this strong, unbending, utterly reliable guide is the only way to stay on that straight and narrow path that leads to our Savior. Several chapters of the Book of Mormon are devoted to Lehi and Nephi applying this lesson, searching the scriptures and quoting from them. Clearly, they want their families and us to understand the importance of the scriptures, especially Isaiah's prophecies about the restoration of the gospel and the coming forth of their record, the Book of Mormon, in our day. The Book of Mormon records how a number of civilizations regarded or disregarded the scriptures beginning with Lehi's own family, 
the Lord commanded Lehi to flee Jerusalem because it was going to be captured by the Babylonians and to journey across the sea to the Promised Land in divinely designed ships. But Lehi's children were bitterly divided into two factions, those who were most righteous than following Nephi, hence they were called the Nephites. They retained the scriptures, and their souls were illuminated by the light of God's everlasting word. But Laman and Lemuel and their descendants, the Lamanites, rejected the scriptures and walked in darkness of ignorance, contention, and destruction. In about A.D. 400, the Nephites also rejected the word of God, dwindled in unbelief, and were destroyed, thus ending approximately a thousand years of Nephite civilization. The Book of Ether gives a history of a civilization. The Jaredites, who left the Old World at the time of the Tower of Babel, approximately 2,200 B.C. The Lord directed them to journey across the sea to the Promised Land in divinely designed barges. When the Jaredites were righteous, they were blessed. When they rejected the word of the Lord and refused to repent, the Spirit of the Lord ceased striving with them. Eventually they departed from the Lord's ways and destroyed one another in about 600 B.C., thus ending approximately 1,600 years of Jaredite civilization. Lehi arrived in the Promised Land about the time of the destruction of the Jaredites. A few years later, still another civilization, Mulek and his followers, also came to the Promised Land. They discovered the last recorded survivor of the Jaredites, a king named Coriantumr. The Mulekites brought no scriptures with them. So about 400 years later, when Mosiah and the Nephites found them, the Mulekite language was corrupted. They had lost their belief in their Creator. They did not know who they were. When the Mulekites learned that the Lord had sent the Nephites with the plates of brass, which contained the scriptural record of the Jews, they rejoiced and joined them and went to the Nephite civilization. As with voices from the dust, the prophets of the Lord cry out to us on earth today, Take hold of the scriptures, cling to them, walk by them, live by them, rejoice in them, feast on them, don't nibble. Power of God unto salvation, we are told, that lead us back to our Savior, Jesus Christ. If the Savior were among us in flesh today, he would teach us from the scriptures as he taught when he walked upon the earth in a synagogue at Nazareth. He said, There was delivered unto him a book of the prophet Isaiah, and he began to say unto them, This day in this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Later, when the Sadducees and Pharisees posed a difficult question, Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. And after his resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, his disciples said one to another, did not your heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scripture? To his disciples then and now, his words ring out, Search the scriptures, for they are they which testify of me. A testimony borne by the Holy Ghost. By the power of the Holy Ghost ye may know the truth of all things. Brothers and sisters, I testify that the scriptures have been kept and preserved for us by the hand of the Lord for a wise purpose in him. Lehi prophesied, These plates of brass shall never perish, neither shall they be dimmed any more by time. The Lord covenanted with Enos to preserve, to bring forth the scriptures in his due time. Of the Book of Mormon, the prophet Moroni recorded, They were written and sealed up and hid up unto the Lord, that they might not be destroyed. The scriptures which we have give prophecies and promises, and they have been fulfilled in our day. What a glorious blessing! For when we want to speak to God, we pray. 
when we want Him to speak to us, we search the scriptures, for His words are spoken through His prophets. He will then teach us as we listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. If you have not heard His voice speaking to you lately, return with new eyes and new ears to the scriptures. They are our spiritual lifeline. Behind the darkness of the Iron Curtain, the saints survived because they heard His voice through the scriptures. In other parts of the world, when members couldn't attend church for a time and continued to worship God because they heard His voice through the scriptures. Throughout all of the wars of the past century and the conflicts that rage today, Latter-day Saints survived because they heard His voice through the scriptures. For the Lord has said, The scriptures shall be given to the salvation of my own elect, for they will hear my voice, and shall see me, and shall not be asleep, and shall not abide the, and shall abide the day of my coming, for they shall be purified, even as I am pure. Over the last two millennia ago, Isaiah wrote of the word of God, Now go, write it before them in a table, and note it in a book, that it may be for the time to come forever and ever. That time is now. This world needs the scriptures today. Before the coming of the Savior, it was necessary that all God's children be tutored in the preparatory law of the Moses, which allowed an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Many in this world still live by that fearsome law, and the evidence of it is all around us. We boldly declare that the answer to the terror, destruction, and even genocide of these last days is found in the scriptures. The gospel in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament. The prophecies in the Bible came to pass in the Book of Mormon. The Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price bear witness of the fullness of the gospel, which is now upon the earth. From Genesis to Malachi, from Moses to Abraham, it was prophesied the Savior would come. From the books of Matthew to Revelation, from Nephi to Moroni, and from Joseph Smith to our beloved living president, Gordon B. Hinckley, the prophets all testify that Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, has come and will come again. In Him, old things are done away, and all things have become new. Through the Holy Scriptures, His new and everlasting gospel proclaims, Love thy neighbor as thyself. Love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Do good that hate you. And pray for them that despitefully use you. Of you it is required to forgive all men. For this is the gospel of our Savior, who is anointed to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and to set at liberty them that are bruised. At the end of the Book of Mormon, Moroni figuratively looks out over the last remnant of his people. He knew their extinction could have been avoided if they had not forgotten God's holy word and lost the Spirit of the Lord. Is it any wonder that Moroni writes personally to us, to you and to me, pleading for us to claim the blessings of the Scripture? And when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that you would ask God the Eternal Father in the name of Christ if these things are not true, and if you shall ask with a sincere heart, with a real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. And by the power of the Holy Ghost ye may know the truth of all things. We are living in the latter days, brothers and sisters, in the fullness of times. We must remember that we have control over who we are, no matter how difficult the world becomes. Like those in Third Nephi, the true and faithful will be able to withstand the fiery darts of the adversary when he is loosed upon this earth. Despite all the turmoil in the world, when the Savior comes to his temple, as he did in the Book of Mormon, those who are true and faithful will be there. May we be among them. I so pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
My remarks this afternoon are intended as an invitation to those who have not yet gained a personal testimony of the full payment of tithing. There are many reasons that are used to not pay tithing, such as medical emergencies, debts, car and or home repairs, educational expenses, and insurance. These reasons and others like them are very real and are lived and dealt with every day by many, if not most, of us. They tax our limited financial resources, and if we are not wise stewards of these resources, may result in the inability to meet our tithing obligation to the Lord. A lack of compliance with this eternal law is not to be taken lightly and can not only seriously impair our spiritual growth and development, but can also limit the physical and temporal blessings that we could otherwise enjoy. As Spence, President Spencer W. Kimball once said, quote, The Lord herein makes clear that tithing is His law and is required of all His followers. It is our honor and privilege, our safety and promise, our great blessing to live this law of God. To fail to meet this obligation in full is to deny ourselves the promises and is to omit a weighty matter. It is a transgression, not an inconsequential oversight. End quote. So what is a tithing? The Lord has given us the, His definition. And this shall be the beginning of the tithing of my people. And after that, those who have thus been tithed shall pay one-tenth of all their interest annually. And this shall be a standing law unto them forever. Please note that the tithe is not just any free will offering, nor is it a twentieth or some other fraction of our annual interest or income. President Howard W. Hunter stated it this way, quote, The law is simply stated as one-tenth of all their interest. Interest means profit, compensation, increase. It is the wage of one employed, the profit from the operation of a business, the increase of one who grows or produces, or the income to a person from any other source. The Lord said it is a standing law forever, as has been in the past. End quote. How is tithing used? Faithful members of the Church pay their tithing to a member of their branch presidency or ward bishopric. Under the direction of the Lord's prophet, these funds are then gathered and used to fund the growth and development of the Church throughout the world. Examples of the use of tithing funds are the construction of temples, the financing of the worldwide missionary effort, the building and maintenance of meeting houses, and other worthy purposes. Why does the Lord require His people to pay tithing? The Lord is our Father, and as our Father, He loves us. He wants to bless us because He loves us, both spiritually and temporally. Listen to some of the statements as written in the scriptures. Hearken and hear, O ye my people, saith the Lord and your God, ye whom I delight to bless with the greatest of blessings, and another. For thus saith the Lord, I the Lord am merciful and gracious unto those who fear me, and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and in truth unto the end. In order to bestow his blessings on his children in a just and equitable manner, the Lord has instituted laws that govern those blessings that he wants all of us to enjoy. He has revealed this principle of laws to his prophet of the Restoration. There is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. And again, I, the Lord, am bound when ye do what I say. But when ye do not what I say, ye have no promise. The Lord knew from the beginning that we, His children, would be faced with temporal and spiritual adversities during this mortal life. Indeed, these adversities are a vital part of this mortal probation. He knew that we would stand in need of His blessings throughout our lives in order to not only survive our individual trials, 
but also to enjoy a degree of comfort and even prosperity. Thus the law of tithing, which was instituted from the beginning. We know from the scriptures that Abraham was blessed throughout his, through his obedience to this law, and we now have that same law as it was reiterated by the Savior during his visit to the inhabitants of this continent almost 2,000 years ago. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before her time in the fields, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. What a marvelous law! He who has not only the power and the means to bless his children temporally and spiritually, but also the desire to do so, has provided to us the key to those blessings that we both need and desire. This key is the law of tithing. Indeed, as stated by President James E. Faust, quote, Some may feel that they cannot afford to pay tithing, but the Lord has promised that He would prepare a way for us to keep all of His commandments. To pay tithing takes the leap of faith in the beginning. We learn about tithing by paying it. Indeed, I believe it is possible to break out of poverty by having the faith to give back to the Lord part of what little we have." My brothers and sisters, we have but to obey the law. And now the invitation. To those who are not yet full tithe payers, I invite you to begin today to pay your full tithing to the Lord through your local priesthood leader. I invite you to pay your tithing to the Lord first, before you meet any other financial obligations. I invite you to put your trust in the Lord, and as He Himself said, Prove me now herewith. As you do so, and as you place your tithing obligation to the Lord as the first priority of all of your other financial obligations, you will indeed become a witness to the matchless power of the Lord as He opens the windows of heaven and pours out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. You will then have gained your own personal testimony of this very sacred law of tithing, and as you continue your obedience to this law, it will draw you ever closer to the Lord. To those of you who are already tithe-payers, I commend you for your faithfulness. You are already witnesses and have your own personal testimonies as to the fulfillment of the Lord's promises to those that obey this commandment, and each time you pay your tithing, your personal commitment to the Lord increases. I bear you my own personal witness to the law of tithing and to the reality of the promises that the Lord has given regarding this law. I know from personal experience that the blessings do indeed come, and for that I am most grateful. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. In Idaho Falls, there is a beautiful airport, one of the largest in the region. This airport allows easy access to the Upper Snake River Valley. I remember as a young man returning from Chile to this very airport and greeting my family after two years of missionary service. Similar scenes have taken place thousands of times in this airport as the faithful saints answer the call to serve. It is a very useful, integral part of the city and region. Near the airport is another very useful and beautiful part of the city, Freeman Park. The Snake River runs along this park for about two miles. There is a walking path that goes through the park and follows on around the river for miles. Freeman Park has acres and acres of green grass filled with baseball and softball diamonds, swing sets for children, picnic shelters for family reunions, beautiful lanes filled with trees and bushes for strolling sweethearts. Looking down the river from the park, the majestic Idaho Falls Temple can be seen, white and clean, standing on high ground. The sound of the rushing waters of the Snake River as it works its way through natural lava outcroppings makes this park very desirable.
It is one of my favorite places to walk with my sweetheart Lynette, relax, contemplate, and meditate. It is very peaceful and inspiring. Why do I talk about the regional airport and Freeman Park in Idaho Falls? Because they are both built on the same kind of ground. Both of these beautiful, useful places used to be sanitary landfills. A sanitary landfill is where garbage is buried between layers of earth. Webster's Dictionary defines a landfill as a system of trash and garbage disposal in which the waste is buried between layers of earth to build up low-lying land. Another definition of a landfill is place where garbage is buried and the land is reclaimed. The definition of reclaim is to recall from wrong or improper conduct, to rescue from an undesirable state. I have lived in Idaho Falls nearly my whole life. I have contributed a lot of garbage to those landfills over the course of more than 50 years. What would the City Fathers think if on a given day I showed up on one of the runways of the Idaho Falls Airport or the middle of one of the grassy fields in Freeman Park with a backhoe and started digging large holes? When they asked me what I was doing, I would respond, I wanted to dig up the old garbage that I had made over the years. I suspect that they would tell me there was no way to identify my personal garbage, that it had been reclaimed and buried long ago. I am sure they would tell me that I had no right to dig up the garbage and that I was destroying something very beautiful and useful that they had made out of my garbage. In short, I don't think they would be very pleased with me. I suppose that they would wonder why anyone would want to destroy something so beautiful and useful in an attempt to dig up old garbage. Is it possible to reclaim a life that through reckless abandon has become so strewn with garbage that it appears that the person is unforgivable? Or what about the one who is making an honest effort but has fallen back into sin so many times that he feels there is no possible way to break this seemingly endless pattern? Or what about the person who has changed their life but just can't forgive themselves? Referring to the Atonement of Jesus Christ, the prophet Alma taught the people in Gideon, And he shall go forth, suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, and this that the word might be fulfilled which saith, He will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people, and he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people, and he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Now the Spirit knoweth all things. Nevertheless, the Son of God suffereth according to the flesh, that he might take upon him the sins of his people, that he might blot out their transgressions according to the power of his deliverance. And now, behold, this is the testimony which is in me. Also speaking of the Atonement, Jacob, the brother of Nephi, taught, Wherefore, it must needs be an infinite atonement. Save it should be an infinite atonement, this corruption could not put on incorruption. Wherefore, the first judgment which came upon man must needs have remained to an endless duration. And if so, this flesh must have laid down to rot and to crumble to its mother earth to rise no more. The Atonement of Jesus Christ is available to each of us. His Atonement is infinite. It applies to everyone, even you. It can clean, reclaim, and sanctify, even you. That is what infinite means, total, complete, all forever. President Boyd K. Packer has taught, There is no habit, 
no addiction, no rebellion, no transgression, no apostasy, no crime, exempted from the promise of complete forgiveness. That is the promise of the Atonement of Christ. Just as the landfill requires dedicated work and attention, laboriously applying layer after layer of fill to reclaim the low-lying ground, our lives also require the same vigilance, continually applying layer after layer of the healing gift of repentance. Just as the City Fathers in Idaho Falls would feel badly about a person trying to dig up their old garbage, our Father in Heaven and His Son, Jesus Christ, feel sorrow when we choose to remain in sin when the gift of repentance made possible through the Atonement can clean, reclaim, and sanctify our lives. When we gratefully accept and use this precious gift, we can enjoy the beauty and usefulness of our lives that God has reclaimed through His infinite love and the Atonement of His Son and our brother Jesus Christ. I testify that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that His Atonement is real, and that through the miracle of forgiveness He can make each of us clean again, even you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. When our first grandson was born, the entire family rushed to the hospital. It was an amazing experience for me to see our oldest son, Matthew, holding this precious new baby boy. While standing at the nursery window with our youngest son, Chad, we gazed into the eyes of this new little spirit, so clean, so pure, so recently from heaven. It seemed that all time stood still, and for an instant we could see the great eternal plan. The sacredness of life was crystal clear, and I whispered to Chad, Do you understand why it's so important to remain clean and pure? He responded reverently, Oh, yes, Mom, I get it. That moment was so powerful that I desire for every young man and woman, every young adult, and indeed each one of us, to feel and know the importance of living a worthy and pure life. It is our personal worthiness that will qualify us to fulfill our individual earthly missions. Our personal mission began long before we arrived on the earth. In the pre-mortal life, we were called and prepared to live on the earth at a time when temptations and challenges would be the greatest. This was on account of our exceeding faith and good works and because of our having chosen good. We understood the Father's plan and knew that it was good. We not only chose it, but we defended it. We knew that our earthly missions would be fraught with temptation, challenges, and hardship. But we also knew that we would be blessed by the fullness of the gospel, living prophets, and the guidance of the Holy Ghost. We knew and understood that our success on this earth would be determined by our worthiness and purity. What does it mean to be worthy? In the Book of Mormon, Lamoni's father employed, What shall I do that I may have this eternal life of which thou hast spoken? Then the king made a commitment to the Lord by saying, I will give away all my sins to know thee. Once Lamoni's father understood who he was and the great plan of which he was a part, worthiness became his heart's desire. To become worthy, we make choices that will enable us to return to our Heavenly Father's presence. We do those things which will qualify us to claim the blessings that He has in store for us. This is the reason we are here on the earth, to see if we will do all things whatsoever the Lord shall command. It is through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we can resist temptation. Our faith will enable us to shun evil. It will be repulsive to us because light cleaveth to light, and virtue loveth virtue. To become unspotted from the world requires not only faith but repentance and obedience. We must live the standards and do those things which entitle us to the constant companionship and guidance of the Holy Ghost, for the Spirit cannot dwell in unholy temples. 
One young man I know said, it's just too hard. Living the standards in my world is not realistic. It's just too hard. Yet knowing that we are sons and daughters of God, we must strive for worthiness. Another group of youth adopted the motto, I can do hard things. They understand their identity, their mission, their source of guidance, and they receive strength through keeping their covenants. They also understand that when a mistake is made, they can change. Satan wants all of us to think that repentance is not possible. This is absolutely not true. The Savior promised forgiveness. Each week, worthily partaking of the sacrament makes it possible for each of us to become clean and pure as we covenant to always remember the Savior and keep His commandments. The gospel of Jesus Christ is one of simplicity, and we are given the tools that make the pathway straight and narrow. The way is clear, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thirty-eight years ago, my husband and I were married in the Salt Lake Temple by President Gordon B. Hinckley. The counsel and direction he gave us that day has become a beacon for our lives. When we left the temple as husband and wife, we went to a park near the temple grounds and recorded in a journal the words of wisdom we had received. He counseled us to always remember our prayers night and morning, to pray as a couple and as a family. He counseled us to always pay a full and honest tithing. He counseled us to read the scriptures daily and apply the principles in our lives. And He counseled us to remain worthy. He said, Always live in such a way that when you need the Lord's blessings, you can call upon Him and receive them because you are worthy. He said, There will come times in your life when you will need immediate blessings. You will need to live in such a way that they will be granted, not out of mercy, but because you are worthy. I didn't comprehend then what that meant. But in the 38 years that have followed, we have called upon our Father in Heaven for many immediate blessings. Daily, these holy habits and righteous routines have helped steady us on the path that leads back into our Father's presence. And today I say, we thank Thee, O God, for a prophet to guide us in these latter days. Personal worthiness is essential to enter His holy temples and to ultimately become heirs to all the Father hath. The Lord has said, Let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God. When we do this, we can confidently enter the holy temples of God with the knowledge that we are worthy to go where the Lord Himself goes. When we are worthy, we can not only enter the temple, the temple can enter us. The Lord's promises of salvation and happiness become ours, and our earthly mission becomes His. Just last month, our youngest son, Chad, went to the temple with a beautiful, worthy young woman to be married for time and all eternity. As he took her hand and knelt at the altar, I looked into the mirrors on either side, and again I wanted to whisper, Do you understand why it is so important to be clean and pure? But this time I didn't have to remind him, because the Spirit did the whispering. To the youth of the noble birthright, Look into the windows of eternity. See yourselves in the Lord's holy temples. See yourselves living worthy and pure lives. Generations are depending on you. I testify that worthiness is possible because of the redeeming and enabling power of the Atonement of Jesus Christ. I pray that it may be said of each one of us, They shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I am grateful to be with you today and to draw from your testimonies. More than words can express, I am grateful for your kind words of support, your expressions of love, and for your prayers. Today I would like to indulge in a few personal memories. I was born of goodly parents. 
my father, Joseph L. Worthland, I learned the values of hard work and compassion. He was bishop of our ward during the Great Depression. He possessed a genuine concern for those in distress. He reached out to those in need, not because it was his duty, but because it was his sincere desire. He tirelessly cared and blessed the lives of many who suffered. In my mind, he was an ideal bishop. Those who knew my father knew how active he was. Someone once told me he could do the work of three men. He really slowed down. In 1938, he was operating a successful business when he received a call from the president of the church, Heber J. Grant. President Grant told him they were reorganizing the presiding bishopric that day and wanted my father to serve as a counselor to the Grand Richards. This caught my father by surprise, and he asked if he could pray about it first. President Grant said, Brother Worthland, there are only 30 minutes before the next session of conference. I want to have some rest. What do you say? Of course, my father said yes. He served 23 years, nine of them as presiding bishop of the Church. My father was 69 years old when he passed away. I happened to be with him when he suddenly collapsed. Soon after he was gone, I often think about my father. I miss him. My mother, Madeline Bittner, was another influence in my life. In her youth, she was a fine athlete and a champion sprinter. She was always kind and loving, but her pace was exhausting. Often she would say, hurry up, and when she did, we picked up the pace. Perhaps that's one of the reasons I had a quick acceleration when I played football. My mother had great, great expectations for her children and expected the best from them. I can still remember her saying, don't be a scrub. You must do better. Scrub was her word for someone who was lazy and, and not giving up to, living up to his potential. My mother passed away when she was 87 years old, and I think about her often and miss her more than I can say. My younger sister, Judith, was an author, composer, and educator. She loved many things, including gospel, music, and archaeology. Judith's birthday was a few days before mine. Every year I'd give her a crisp $1 bill as my birthday present to her. Three days later, she would give me 50 cents as her birthday present to me. <laughs> Judith passed away a few years ago. I miss her and think of her often. And that brings me to my wife, Elisa. I remember the first time I met her. As a favor for a friend, I had gone to her home to pick up her sister, Frances. Elisa opened the door. And at least for me, it was love at first sight. I think she must have said something too, felt something too, for the first words I ever remember her saying was, I knew who you was. And Elisa was an English major. <laughs> to this day, I still cherish those five words as some of the most beautiful in human, in human language. She loved to play tennis and had a lightning serve. I tried to play tennis with her but I finally quit after coming to realize, realization that I couldn't hit what I couldn't see. <laughs> she was my strength and my joy. Because of her, I'm a better man, husband, and father. We married, had eight, eight children, and walked together through 65 years of life. I owe more than I, to my wife than I can possibly express. I don't know if there ever was a perfect marriage. But from my perspective, I think ours was. When President Hinckley spoke at Sister Worthland's funeral, he said, That is a de devastating, consuming thing to lose someone you love. It gnaws at your soul. He was right. And Lisa was my greatest joy. Now her passing is my greatest sorrow. In the lonely hours I spent a great deal of time thinking about eternal things, I've contemplated the comforting doctrines of eternal life. During my life, I've heard many sermons on the resurrection. Like you, I can recite the events of that first Easter Sunday. I have marked in my scriptures passages regarding the resurrection and have close at hand many of the statements and the key statements uttered by Latter-day Prophets on the subject. We know what the resurrection is, the reuniting of the, of the Spirit and body in, in its perfect form. 
President Joseph F. Smith said that those from whom we have to part here, we will meet again and see as they are. We'll meet the same identical being that we associated with here in the flesh. President Spencer W. Kimball amplified this when he said, I am sure that if we can imagine ourselves at our very best, physically, mentally, spiritually, that is the way we will come back. When we're resurrected, this mortal body is raised to an immortal body. We can die no more. Can you imagine that? Life at our prime, never sick, never in pain, never burdened by the ills that so often beset us in mortality. The resurrection is the core of our beliefs as Christians. Without it, our faith is meaningless. The Apostle Paul said, If Christ be not risen, then is ours preaching vain, and our faith is also vain. In all the history of the world, there have been many great and wise souls, many of whom claimed special knowledge of God. But when the Savior rose from the tomb, He did something no one had ever done. He did something no one else could do. He broke the bonds of death, not only for Himself, but for all who have ever lived, the just and the unjust. When Christ rose from the grave, becoming the first fruits of the resurrection, He made that gift available to all. And with that sublime act, He softened the devastating, consuming sorrow that gnaws at the souls of those who have lost their precious loved ones. I think of how, how that dark Friday was when Christ was lifted up on the cross. On that terrible Friday, the earth shook and grew dark. Frightful storms lashed at the earth. Those evil men who sought his life rejoiced. Now that Jesus was no more, surely those who followed him would disperse. On that day they stood triumphant. On that day the veil of the temple was rented in twain. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, both were overcome with grief and despair. The superb man they had loved and honored hung lifeless upon the cross. On that Friday, the apostles were devastated. Jesus, their Savior, the man who had walked on water and raised the dead, was himself at the mercy of wicked men. They watched helplessly as he was overcome by his enemies. On that Friday, the Savior of mankind was humiliated and bruised and abused and reviled. It was Friday filled with devastating, consuming sorrow that gnawed the souls of those who loved and honored the Son of God. I think of all the days since the beginning of this world's history that Friday was the darkest. But the doom of that day did not endure. The despair did not linger, because on Sunday the resurrected Lord burst the bonds of death. He ascended from the grave and appeared gloriously triumphant as the Savior of all mankind. In an instant, the eyes that had been filled with ever-flowing tears dried. The lips that had whispered prayers of distress and grief now filled the air with wondrous praise. For Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, stood before him as the firstfruits of the resurrection, the proof that death is merely the beginning of a new and wondrous existence. Each of us will have our own Fridays, those days when the universe itself seems shattered and the shards of, the, of our world lie littered upon us in pieces. We will all experience those broken times when it seems we can never be put together again. We will all have our Fridays. But I testify in the name of the one who conquered death, Sunday will come. In the darkness of our sorrow, Sunday will come. No matter our desperation, no matter our grief, Sunday will come. In this life or the next, Sunday will come. I testify to you that the resurrection is not a fable. We have the personal testimonies of those who saw him. Thousands in the old and new worlds of the new worlds witnessed the risen Savior. They have felt the wounds in his hands, feet, and side. They shed tears of unrestrained joy as they embraced him. After the resurrection, the disciples became renewed. They traveled throughout the world proclaiming the glorious news of the gospel. Had they chosen, 
They could have disappeared and returned to their former lives and occupations. In time, their association with Him would have been forgotten. They could have denied the divinity of Christ. Yet, they did not. In the face of danger, ridicule, and threat of death, they entered palaces, temples, and synagogues, boldly proclaiming Jesus the Christ, the resurrected Son of the living God. Many of them offered as a final testimony their own precious lives. They died as martyrs, the testimony of the risen Christ on the lips as they perished. The resurrection transformed the lives of those who witnessed it. Should it not transform us, brethren and sisters, we will all rise from the grave. And on that father, my mother will embrace my mother. On that day, I will hold in my arms once again my beloved Elisa. Because of the life and the eternal sacrifice of the Savior of the world, we will be united with those we have cherished. On that day, we will know the love of our, of our Heavenly Father. On that day, we will rejoice that the Messiah overcame all, that we could live forever. Because of the sacred ordinances received in holy temples, our departure from this brief mortality cannot long separate relationships that have been fastened together with cords made in eternal ties. It is my solemn testimony that death is not the end of existence. In this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all of all men most miserable. Because of the risen Christ, death is swallowed up in victory. Because of our beloved Redeemer, we can lift our voices even in the midst of our darkest Fridays and proclaim, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? When President Hinckley spoke of the terrible loneliness that comes to those who lose the ones they love, he also promised that in the quiet of the night a still unheard voice whispers peace to our soul. All is well. I am grateful beyond measure for the sublime true doctrines of the gospel and for the gift of the Holy Ghost, which has whispered to my soul the comforting and peaceful words promised to our beloved prophet. From the depths of my soul, I rejoice in the glory of the gospel. I rejoice the prophet Joseph Smith was chosen to restore the gospel in its fullness in the last dispensation. I rejoice that we have a prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley, who directs the Lord's Church in our day. May we understand and live in thanksgiving for the priceless gifts that come to us and as sons and daughters of a loving Heavenly Father, and for the promise of a, that bright day when we shall all rise triumphant from the grave, that we may always know that matter how dark our Friday, Sunday will come, is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.